Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Authority of the King, with a message entitled, Identified with Christ. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verses 22 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The first time I visited Romania, it was shortly after the end of communism. After that, I had a number of opportunities to visit and had the enormous privilege of getting to know some of the pastors and Christian leaders who had suffered for their faith. But as the years went by, a new generation of leaders was coming into place who had not known what it was like to be taken to prison for their faith. And in that, I once heard a pastor complain about the present situation. He said, you know, in the past, things were far clearer. You could tell a faithful Christian pastor because all the faithful ones went to jail and all the ones who compromised with the communist regime stayed out of jail. Unfaithful pastors often became informers on other Christians in order to stay out of jail. But now, said this pastor, it's more difficult to know who's been faithful and who is compromised. Clearly, we need help. How do you discern that matter in Canada, he asked, where you have never sent anyone to prison for their faith? You know, I had to think about that. Things are sometimes more complicated when pastors are protected by the law, when churches are protected by the law, and when when a failure to preach the word with boldness or when a failure to live by the Spirit is not examined by anyone. How then do we ascertain who's faithful? We've been studying the 10th chapter of Matthew, an extended teaching in which Jesus was mentoring the twelve. He was about to send them out on their first short-term missions experience, and he's warning them. They're going to be sheep in the midst of wolves, and therefore, they are to expect opposition and even persecution. But all of this is a training ground for their long-term assignment, which is to go into all the world. And with the expectation that harassment and mistreatment lies ahead of them, Jesus now expands the conversation about how to respond and also how to remain faithful. I'm reading Matthew chapter 10, verses 22 to 25. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And so Jesus is promising persecution. He's not a pessimist. He's a realist. He knows that his gospel is a declaration of warfare against demons and the power structures of men. Cultures will not easily give way to the gospel, but will resist it with great force. You know, as a brief aside, someone might ask, what are we to make of that time after the persecution of the church ended in the Roman world? Constantine, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire in the year AD 313, declared an edict of toleration demanding that the church of Jesus now be tolerated and offered the church and its ministers legal protection under the law. In succeeding generations, as Christianity became the religion of power, the church actually began to be not the recipient of persecution, but actually became the agent of persecution toward others. Pagans were hounded, forced to recant, threatened with imprisonment and death by the church. 
Uh, Some of you don't know, but the Spanish Inquisition was only officially abolished in the year 1834, and the last execution was in 1826. So much could be said here, but, but I'm mindful not to want to get too far afield from this text or from this teaching of Jesus. But a note of explanation is required when Christianity became the religion of power. John 18.36 is a very important text. Jesus has been handed over to Pilate in order to stand trial on a charge that he wishes to overthrow the Roman Empire. Pilate therefore asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And, And that question is vital. In response, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Now, whatever we make of this statement, let's at the very least settle on this one thing. Jesus was not establishing an earthly center of political power. Indeed, he renounced it. And so we might say, whenever the church of Jesus Christ becomes aligned with earthly power, it stops being the church of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, of course. When Jesus returns, his power will be an earthly and a heavenly power, but that is strictly relegated to the future realm when the wicked are punished and the righteous are given their eternal reward. But in the meantime, on this side of that event, his kingdom would not be aligned with earthly power, for it is the kingdom of heaven. It is the kingdom that allows the great blessings of the future realm to tumble into the present era, even blessing those who do not follow Christ. And it is for that reason that Jesus sends his twelve, not as armed troops or as conquistadors, but as sheep in the midst of wolves, as, as those who conquer through the power of Christ's compassion, not the power of the sword. And it is for that reason that that Christians should not seek to exercise coercive force over their enemies, but should seek to exercise the great spiritual force of love for their enemies. Now, given this reality, Jesus says in verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Notice how important that verse is. Jesus is not saying that you must prove your faithfulness by going to prison or undergoing hostile treatment. He, however, is saying that we must acknowledge him before men, that we must endure in the day of evil. And that's what the Romanian Christians were doing when they were under communism. They were faithfully enduring. And the first way we respond to hatred of the world is to simply endure. By this, we tell the world that that Jesus is better than their toys, their wealth, their houses, and their cars, better than acceptance in their culture. But there are more ways to respond. He does provide his followers with counsel. If at all possible, he says, avoid persecution, don't run to it. You know, some believers have difficulty with the Christian who flees persecution. In fact, in the second century and beyond, there were many Christian martyrs, and we do know that some believers were trying to get themselves martyred. The talk of a martyr's crown led some believers to be overly aggressive in confronting Roman law. In effect, they were goading the Roman authorities to react. They wanted to be martyred. And in response, a great many wise Christian leaders condemned this attitude. Martyrdom is to be faithfully endured, not willingly sought. If we can avoid being persecuted and do not deny Christ, we are encouraged by Jesus to take that route. That's why today, 
we should advocate to our governments and bring to their attention when Christians are being held in jail in some extremist countries. While we esteem those who suffer, we do not run towards it. This is never Christ's will. We should do all we can to pray for and become active in protecting our brothers and sisters who are in danger. And furthermore, I plead with Christians that when missions organizations withdraw some of their missionaries from a dangerous situation, that we not criticize those often painful decisions and acknowledge that they often take a great deal of wisdom to decide. Instead of criticizing, we do well to remember those words of Jesus and to pray and act where we can. So Jesus says, endure and take care. And then comes a curious statement. Look again at the last half of verse 23. I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, some of you may remember the very famous Albert Schweitzer, the French-German medical missionary who spent his life's work in the African country of Gabon. Schweitzer believed that Jesus thought his kingdom would come before the Twelve had completed their ministry in Israel. And then Schweitzer said, when that didn't happen, in absolute despair, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem to die as a martyr. Some of you listening might have had a conversation with a skeptic of the Bible who proclaims that that Jesus thought that the kingdom would come, but that he was wrong. And what we have here in, in Matthew 10, 23 is a clear case of either a false prophecy or a case of mistaken expectations. Now, much has been made of this verse, and it's often misunderstood. I am aware of at least seven different interpretations people have taken of this verse, and let's be clear. Jesus didn't say that the coming of the Son of Man referred to the second coming of Jesus. Well, if that's not what he's saying, what is he saying? And what practical application can we make of this passage? Well, I think there's something valuable in this passage that can greatly enhance our understanding of what Christ is calling us to do in our lives. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Neufeld, Alathagain's Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. While the full Israel itinerary is now available, so for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. Matthew 10, 23 records Jesus as saying to his disciples, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I've been saying that this text does not promise the coming of the kingdom of heaven or of his second coming. See, how do I know that with certainty? Well, up to this point in Matthew, Jesus has never mentioned his second coming. Up to now, the 12 have no such teaching. 
It was not until he sat with them on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the Temple Mount, that he actually reveals to them that the kingdom of heaven is further off than they had imagined. There he tells them that he is going to be crucified in Jerusalem, and then he tells them there'll be wars and rumors of war, but the end is not yet. And then he repeats some of the teaching he's had before here in Matthew 10. They're going to be hated by all. False messiahs will appear, and on and on go the hardships, and then that this gospel will be preached to all nations, and then and only then would the end come. It's at this time that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven. Here's what I'm saying. Up till this moment, that is in Matthew 10, he has never taught his disciples about the second coming. And therefore, the disciples would have no frame of reference for the second coming. So none of them thought of his second coming when he said that you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Whatever the Son of Man comes means, it doesn't mean the second coming of Jesus. Furthermore, Matthew, who records this saying of Jesus, writes this book to prove to us that what Jesus says is true. And he could hardly have written us and shown us where Jesus makes mistakes. So whatever the 12 understood Jesus to mean when he said, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes, it is impossible for them to have thought of Christ's second advent. So once we understand that, we're going to reject notions that Jesus was mistaken. And as Albert Schweitzer wanted us to believe, that after that, in depression, Jesus simply goes to Jerusalem to die in despair. But that still doesn't answer the question, does it? What did Jesus mean when he said this? You know, some suggest that the phrase is actually quite simple. Jesus might simply be telling his disciples that they will have not gone through all the towns of Israel until he comes, that is, until he catches up to them. Now, that is possible. He might be saying, this is a short-term assignment, and I'm going to end your assignment when I choose to come to you. Now, that's possible, but there's another possible solution, and that one also is very intriguing. You know, some suggest that the key to understanding this teaching has to do with the phrase, the Son of Man. Now, that phrase, Son of Man, is found 28 times in the book of Matthew, and each usage of it is used by Jesus to describe himself. But here, and I think this is very important, most of the times we encounter that phrase happens later in the book of Matthew. See, up to this point, we've only heard the phrase on two separate occasions. In other words, as Jesus is getting closer to his death and his resurrection, he will use the phrase Son of Man more and more often. And what's more, when he uses the phrase, he often refers to his own suffering and death and then also his own subsequent resurrection. And so Son of Man is used most when speaking of his passion and the great victory over death that is to follow. Okay, what does the phrase Son of Man actually mean? I mean, why doesn't Jesus simply call himself the Son of God? And the answer has to do with how vague the title Son of Man actually is. See, there's no doubt the phrase comes from the Old Testament. It's found most frequently in the book of Ezekiel, where the prophet uses it to describe himself. He's the son of man, he says, which means he's simply a human being. Even though he's a prophet, he's the son of man in the sense that he's no more and no less than any other human being. In Ezekiel, that title is an expression of the prophet's humility. But, and here's the kicker, 
That same title is used in the book of Daniel, and there it means something very different. Listen to Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so in Daniel, the Son of Man is more than just a humble way of saying, I'm human. It's saying, I'm the great king whom the Father has appointed to rule the nations. So why did Jesus use the phrase Son of Man? Well, the answer is that if he had used the phrase Son of God, the Jewish religious leaders would have immediately put him to death for blasphemy, and he would not have been able to complete his ministry. So he used a phrase that was deliberately vague and yet deliberately descriptive of who he actually was. And so when the Pharisees, and for that matter, everyone else, heard him refer to himself as the Son of Man, they would have asked, does he mean the Son of Man that's used in Ezekiel or the way it's used in Daniel? And they wouldn't have known. And so they asked, who is this Son of Man? Because it was a confusing title. I mean, what did he mean? Now, with that as a background, let's go back to Matthew 10, where Jesus promises his disciples that they would not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man came. What is the coming of the Son of Man found in Matthew 10? Well, since the disciples had no concept yet of the second coming of Jesus, I believe that Jesus was saying, you will not have evangelized all the towns of Israel before it becomes abundantly clear who the Son of Man is. See, the coming of the Son of Man could mean the revealing of the Son of Man or the revelation to Israel of who the Son of Man actually is. Now, that, of course, refers to the resurrection from the dead when it would become abundantly plain to all Israel that Jesus truly was and is the Messiah and the one who has been given dominion over all nations. He's saying, you will not have evangelized all of Israel before it becomes plain to Israel through my resurrection, what I meant when I said, I'm the son of man. Or to put it another way, you won't have evangelized Israel before I reveal that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But why is he telling them that? Well, because he's sending out the 12 on a short-term missions assignment. They will be opposed in this assignment. And this opposition is but the beginning of a much wider and tougher assignment to come. But as they are opposed, they're not to worry. People may oppose them, but right around the corner is the revelation that this Jesus really is the great and ultimate king of the earth. And by the way, on this side of the resurrection, that is, now that the resurrection has happened and it's plain that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, I take great encouragement from this. People may oppose us today, but they are opposing the one who has authority over all things. And furthermore, we know that the second coming of Jesus is certain. The time will surely come when the sky is parted and the Son of Man appears a second time in great glory. You who persecute us now and oppose us for but a moment, don't you know that you're on the losing side and we, the meek, the persecuted, the ones that belong to him, belong to the one who has been given authority over all things. 
Now, immediately after saying that he will reveal himself as the Son of Man, Jesus then returns to the idea of persecution. He tells them that a disciple is not greater than his teacher. And if they call Jesus Beelzebul, how much more will they slander his followers? Now, Beelzebul is a Jewish reference to Satan. It's a play on words, and it literally means the Lord of dung or the Lord of crap. And that's what they call Jesus. His only authority is over his disciples who are no more than a pile of manure, and it's that pile of manure that he reigns over. And says Jesus, if that's what they called me, imagine what they have reserved for you. But here, we're reminded that the one who was insulted by men and, and finally hung on a cross was also the one who demonstrated that he is much more than the Lord of a manure pile. He's Lord over life and death itself. And in the future, he will return, and then all the nations of the earth will mourn at his coming, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's the joy of being identified with Jesus. If he was maligned, we will be as well. If he was persecuted, well, we're going to be as well. But if he was raised from the dead, we will rise with him. And if he is destined to rule the nations, then we, his followers, will rule and reign with him. And for that reason, believers must never fear that they might be treated in the way that Christ was treated. For Christ's future is our future as well. We are united with him, and therefore we are tied to him for all of eternity. John, as you're speaking, I was reminded that, you know, we're being called to be, in essence, or, or to receive humiliation or to endure humiliation for God's sake. You know, I have a hard time even watching humiliation, let alone being humiliated, but that's what we're being called to do, I think. Yeah, I think it's very helpful. Thank you, Ben, for that question. That's an insightful question. I think it's very helpful for us to remember that our Lord was humiliated. I mean, when you put it that way, you know, it's hard for us to watch someone being humiliated and shamefully treated, uh, and yet it happens all the time. Um, we need to think about what it was for Jesus to die on the cross. And then comes, of course, the invitation from Jesus that says, come and share in my humiliation so that you might also share in the joy that is set before you as my follower. So I, I think we are being asked to swallow a very bitter pill, but we are also being invited to be a part of a rich reward that so outstrips the, the pill we are invited to swallow. But yes, I think it, you know, we shouldn't sugarcoat this. This is how it is. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. As we do every October, this year we're offering a 2022 scripture calendar based upon Dr. Neufeld's recent book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. Throughout the year, you'll be reminded of God's great provision for those who believe, featuring wonderful pictures of crosses around the world, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and passages of scripture that remind us of all the benefits of our salvation. I believe this is one of Back to the Bible Canada's best scripture calendars, and it's yours for free as our gift. Just call to request your copy today as quantities are limited. We pray this will be an inspiration to express gratitude to God throughout 2022. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. 
Additional calendars to your free calendar are also available at $10 each.